Radio 4 presents the Mark Steele Lectures, a series of lectures on people with a passion. Tonight, Billie Holiday. Oh, Lester. <laughs> now, this is a bit of a plea for redemption, really, on my part tonight, because I used to hate jazz. When I first heard that jazz musicians were once considered shocking and outrageous, I thought, what? And I was even more puzzled when I went to a modern jazz club, and they were just going... And then every now and again, a bloke would go, yeah! <laughs> and then they'd say... Thank you very much. That was Dana's All Kinds of Everything Reminds Me of You. <laughs> and you talk to these jazz people, they see music as a sort of maths. There's a bloke at that modern jazz place, he said to me, that pianist is so clever because he uses rootless chords. And I thought, well, yes, that is clever, but it's horrible. <laughs> the theory of relativity is clever. I don't want some bastard singing it at me, do I? <laughs> Of course this isn't the way jazz began, because every musical form, no matter how shocking, eventually either goes bonkers or becomes incorporated into the mainstream. It's like gangster rap. Give it a few years and it'll be on the telly, on adverts, with a bloke going, when I've got my Uzi, I can be choosy, so I'll take Elka-Seltzer to stop me feeling woozy. <laughs> so I'm going to argue that, in fact, Billie Holiday was a figure who not only caused shock and outrage, but was a genuinely brilliant jazz musician. And the reason we can be certain about this is because she passes the test set by my French teacher, Mr. Forrest. One day he came into class and he saw a group of boys who'd bought a Yes album. And he was so outraged that he spent the whole lesson arguing that Yes were crap. <laughs> All great music, he said, from Beethoven to Billie Holiday or the Stones, sounds simple until you break it down and you realise it is in fact extremely complex. But Yes, he said, Sounds extremely complex. <laughs> but you break it down and it is extremely moronic. <laughs> now, Billie Holiday wasn't just a brilliant singer, she transformed singing. And the image sometimes portrayed of her is one of a tragic, wasted victim. But I want to suggest that far from leading a depressing life, she uplifted those who heard her singing, and her singing uplifted herself. And she was brought up in Baltimore, Iowa, born in 1915 at a time when two major changes were unfolding which would shape her life. And the first was the creation of jazz. Because from the time that the first slaves were taken from Africa to America, singing was the only way that they could express their individuality. Even drums were banned on plantations because the slaves might have been able to use them to communicate. So music was more fundamental, really, to black people than it was to whites. And in many ways, that's still true, really, isn't it? Like a while ago, I saw this aerobics class for Jamaican old-age pensioners. And it was brilliant, with all these 70-year-old Jamaicans stretching and dancing to this Bob Marley tape, which could never happen with white English pensioners, could it? <laughs> Unless someone discovered a track called Lively Up Yourself, I Didn't Want To Do It, I Didn't Want To Do It. <laughs> Now, after the Civil War, there was room for the ex-slaves to express themselves independently, and blacks developed the blues. But in New Orleans, the French Creoles, most of whom hadn't been slaves, retained a separate style of music until the two cultures integrated, a new form of music arose, and this was jazz. But the other factor shaping the world that Billie Holiday was brought up in was the change in status of black people. Legal segregation, known as the Jim Crow laws, was introduced, and blacks then had to use separate trains, streetcars, parks schools and hospitals. The Jim Crow laws introduced new rules for voting, which disqualified most blacks and poor whites. For example, in Florida, the number of whites entitled to vote went down from 75% to 40%. 
Whereas now, everyone's allowed to vote, but then they go, oh, don't bother with the counting, that just holds everything up. <laughs> the new atmosphere sparked a wave of race hate. By 1920, there were four million members of the Ku Klux Klan. There was a culture of lynching that spread across the country. And then during the First World War, a million blacks moved from the South to cities like New York, Chicago and Detroit. And a sentiment spread that they had a right to demand a piece of the country that they were working and fighting for. A Jamaican, Marcus Garvey, formed the Universal Negro Improvement Association. Although he's now considered to have been a moderate, he urged his supporters to... Have a white man lynched for every Negro who's lynched. Well, that's not bad for a moderate. <laughs> Wouldn't get that from Shirley Williams. Sorry I'm late for the select committee. I've been lynching Anne Whittacombe and it took rather longer than I anticipated. <laughs> This was the whirlpool that Billie Holiday was born into as Eleonora Fagan. And the family she was born into, she described in the opening lines of her autobiography. Mom and Pop were just a couple of kids when they got married. He was 18, she was 16, and I was three. <laughs> when she was born, her mum couldn't afford the fee for staying in the maternity ward, so she had to scrub the hospital floors on the day that she gave birth. Then her mother went away to work, so Billy was brought up by her cousin who beat her every day. At the age of ten, she went to work as a cleaner at a brothel shortly after she was raped, and when the police arrived, they arrested her. At thirteen, she went to New York and became a prostitute until she refused to go with a bloke called Big Blue, so the brothel grasped her up and she went to jail. The only redeeming feature was that her proximity to brothels put her in touch with music. So at Alice Dean's brothel, she would listen for hours to Louis Armstrong and Bessie Smith records. In a funny sort of way, it must be quite an honour for a musician if your records get played in a brothel. Because I bet there's not a brothel in history that's played Cliff Richard. <laughs> There'd just be a queue of people at reception, wouldn't there, asking for their money back, going, oh, mistletoe and wine came on and I just sort of went off the idea. <laughs> In the 20s, there was a boom in the live music scene, especially in New York, where Billy had moved to with her mother. And the basements in the brownstone dwellings around the city were ideal venues for illegal clubs called speakeasies during Prohibition, and jazz was booming. Billy decided to try and get a job as a singer in these new clubs. She said with defiance... I was determined never to become some rich man's maid like my mother. She sang at a Harlem restaurant where her mother was a cook and was taken on by other clubs where she earned around $35 a week from tips which she had to pick up from the table between her legs. The money was split with a pianist who had a mirror on the piano to check how much the singers were taking. And these clubs would go on all night. Monet's Supper Club was pretty typical. It started around midnight and usually went on until six and sometimes till nine. So in Prohibition America, it was considerably easier to get a late drink than in 21st century London. <laughs> now, the status of women singers was that they were seen as trivial decoration. But no lyrics were pumped out of Tin Pan Alley, which was in every sense a song factory. So a typical song that Billy had to sing went... I walked upon a rainbow, I clung onto a star. You had me up in heaven, that's why I had to fall so far. And you could feel some bloke in an office on a Friday afternoon going, Oh, Christ, quick, come on, otherwise I'm going to miss me train. What rhymes with star? Car, Qatar, <laughs> Far, that's it. Fall so far. That'll do. I'm off. With no idea that 70 years later, if Boyzone saw it, they go, Star, far, that's amazing, let's mime to it. <laughs> 
was one of the most popular singers in the clubs, and she changed her name from Eleanor to Billy after her favourite actress, Billy Dove. And then the MC of the famous Apollo Club booked her, where she was an immediate hit. The Apollo's owner said, You never heard singing so slow, so lazy with such a drawl. It ain't the blues. I don't know what it is, but you got to hear her. Now, she may not have been aware why she was so different, but it was probably this. One of the differences between jazz and the blues was that jazz allowed the musicians to improvise solos. Louis Armstrong was the first to recognise this, and then Lester Young adapted the solo to the saxophone. And this, in segregated Ku Klux Klan-infested America, was a way for black people to convey self-expression. And Billie Holiday applied the same method to singing. She sang her notes around the beat. For example... allowed Billy to reshape songs so even when you're smiling could become unpredictable though I find it hard to listen even to her version as it's one of a hundred songs that reminds me of sing something simple <laughs> I could be on a desert island with Michelle Pfeiffer and if someone started singing run rabbit run I'd think oh no it's Sunday night drizzling and it's school tomorrow <laughs> So each word became an expression of emotion. That may be why a pianist Bobby Tucker said, A singer like Ella Fitzgerald says, My man's left me and you think the guy's gone down the street for a loaf of bread. But when Billy says, My man's gone, his bags are packed and he ain't never coming back. Which is probably unfair on Ella Fitzgerald, but you get the point. Britney Spears would sing, And now you've left me in floods of tears, and use exactly the same expression as if she was singing, Shake and vac and put the freshness back. <laughs> And what sort of passionless society could create such a thing as Muzak, where every possible twinkle of expression or syncopation is removed to leave? <laughs> and this is pumped into supermarkets and carpet warehouses and B&Q and PC World and hotels, and it's evil! Surely nobody likes this cack, do they? They can't do, because you never get live Muzak gigs. Hello, Glasgow. Here's one we know you all know. Now, Billie Holiday was the polar opposite of Muzak, so she could be sexual despite the censorship, like when she sings... I'm like an oven that's crying for heat. So she makes I'm like an oven crying for heat sound filthy. If Britney Spears sang that, you'd think it was an advert for Dixon's. <laughs> now, once it was established, the passion and the expression of the jazz scene made it attractive to middle-class whites. Amongst a certain white circle, black culture became chic. So clubs catering for whites were set up and given names to connect them with the South, like the Kentucky Club or the Cotton Club. Though in reality, they bore no relation to black culture at all. It was similar to fake Irishness today. It's this yearning for quaintness, a culture we imagine to be full of passion because ours hasn't got any. This is why the Americans love to pretend that they're Irish, isn't it? I was on a plane going to America once when this American woman said to me, I'm 70 years old and I've just been to Ireland for the first time, which is so exciting because I'm Irish. <laughs> and I wanted to grab her and go, how can you be Irish if you're 70 and you've just been there for the first time? <laughs> God, are all Americans like this and can't understand that there is a difference between being from somewhere and having been somewhere once? <laughs> Do all Americans get this mixed up? Does Neil Armstrong go around saying, I'm from the moon, you know? 
Billy's style made her popular with certain audiences, but not with those expecting a mainstream act. So she was booked to appear as the regular singer at the Grand Terrace in Chicago for $75 a week. But each night as she came off, the manager, Ed Fox, harangued her, and Billy's account of the last row was... He said, why should I pay you to stink my goddamn show up? Everybody says you sing too slow. So she threw the office furniture at him. And then she was sacked. Why were they all worried about how fast she sang? It's as if capitalists just can't stop thinking about production targets. <laughs> Even when it comes to singing. Come on, you've got another two verses done in that time. <laughs> there should have been a union rep going, well, no, I mean, she can't do more than 23 words a minute, you see, or she'll be taking words off the other singers, you see. <laughs> position here, right? She's black, a woman, and working for a big theatre manager. These were three counts that, it would have been expected, would make her keep quiet and do as she was told. Instead, she insisted on singing in an entirely original style and to make her point slung furniture at her boss. Not really a victim. But this is the sort of conflict that always brews in the entertainment industry, because most of the people running it aren't really bothered about why something's popular, just that it is popular. So you get something new and they're likely to go, ah, yes, people seem to like this uh, Eminem chap, I notice, yes. Why don't we get him to play Puss in Boots with Sue Pollard at Wimbledon <laughs> Theatre? And they'd even write some lyrics for him. Oh no, it's my wicked aunt, but she shan't be wicked if you chant. Oh no, you can't. <laughs> The chances are, in a couple of years, he'll do it. <laughs> As Billy attracted a following, she signed her first record deal with Columbia, making records mostly for jukeboxes, usually receiving one-off payments of around $75 for recordings that ended up selling millions. Her next live work was with the Count Basie Orchestra, touring across America, spending up to 16 hours a day in a bus. And at this point, Lester Young named her Lady Day, as she was known from then on. And there was a perpetual problem with the segregation laws, but the most humiliating incident was at the Fox Theatre in Detroit, where the manager decided that she was too light to be singing with an all-black band. So before going on stage, she had to black up to ensure that... Some of the customers aren't offended. <laughs> And what I find staggering here is that the people dishing out this stuff are white Americans. This is the race. If they're 24 stone, go skateboarding down the high street in pink fluorescent swimming trunks. <laughs> when Billy left the Count Basie band, she joined the all-white band of clarinetist Artie Shaw. And in St. Louis, the band was only allowed to play if they added a white singer. So Shaw had to select a white woman to accompany Billy. During the numbers Billy wasn't singing on, she wasn't allowed anywhere else in the theatre, so had to sit outside on the bus. The pressure of staying in separate hotels, separate restaurants, and having to make her way to the stage by the goods lift started to get to her, and eventually she said... I got to the point where I hardly ever slept or ate without a major production. But see, this isn't the attitude of a victim. She could have just put up with it. And then John Hammond, who'd been the first club owner to discover Billy in the first place, took her to Barney Josephson, who was the owner of a club he'd just founded called the Cafe Society. So this is one of the reasons jazz could only have taken off in America. They've got the right names. Their club owners are called names like Barney Josephson. Our club owners have names like Peter Stringfellow. <laughs> which sounds like the kid at school who has to go home early because he's glued a ruler to his cheek. <laughs> 
The Café Society was the first prominent club to encourage integrated bands and an integrated audience. In 1938, Billie Holiday became the resident singer there, and through that venue became nationally known. The songs she sang each night at Café Society were in one sense a challenge to America, racially, musically and sexually. And she was aware of this. In a magazine interview, she said, There is nothing about living on the sidewalks I didn't know. One night she was approached by a Jewish New York school teacher called Lewis Allen with a poem which he suggested she should turn into a song. Lewis Allen's subject was lynching. Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze, strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. One biography claims... Lady was non-political. When she first looked at strange fruit, she didn't know what to make of it. She never read anything but comic books. Barney Josephson felt that at first Billy didn't know what the hell the song meant. This is a woman who spent her whole life made to sit on the backs of buses and trains and made to walk to the stage by the goods lift, surrounded by lynching and the Ku Klux Klan. But she looked at that poem and thought, what a nice idea, a song about a pomegranate. <laughs> it wasn't just another song in her repertoire, it became her trademark. Southern She finished each set with strange fruit, and the waiters insisted on perfect silence before she began. All the lights went out except for a pin spotlight on her face, and she never sang an encore afterwards as she thought this might dampen the effect. Then the sudden smell of burning flesh. Columbia refused to record the song because... They won't buy it in the South. We'll be boycotted. It's too inflammatory. And the BBC considered the song... Unsuitable for transmission. <laughs> worried about. If anyone had complained, they could have read out the letter on feedback. <laughs> Meanwhile, someone else who found the song too fruity for their liking was a Mr. O. Mosley in Brixton Prison. <laughs> he writes, Why, oh, why does John Peel play nonsense such as Strange Fruit when I'm sure most listeners would much rather hear traditional tunes such as Deutschland, Deutschland, Uber Alice and the speeches from the Nuremberg Rally sung by the Mike Sam singers. <laughs> During the war, she appeared at fundraising benefits for the Communist Party, which hopefully were better than most benefits organised by the British left. <laughs> or she'd have been met by a bloke going, uh, Are you Billy Holiday? Oh, right, yeah. Well, um, like, <laughs> we can't have it at the Apollo because we forgot to send the booking form back, so... Uh, <laughs> so uh, we're going to have it round Terry's house. So. <laughs> she was also on the election committee for the Communist candidate in Harlem. This is often dismissed as naivety on Billy's part, but she regarded the communists as allies as they'd led several campaigns against segregation in the 1930s. Though Billy didn't have a deep intellectual commitment to communist party theory, as that would have made life quite hard as a jazz singer. Right, Billy, um, we've had a meeting of the Culture Committee and uh, we've written a song we'd like you to add to your repertoire. It goes... I'm feeling good as I knew I would, because tractor production's gone up once again by 30% right across the Ukraine. <laughs> There was another sense in which she displayed her sense of belonging to the corner hoodlums and number runners. These were the men she trusted, so they were the men that she went out with and married. Now, just as Strange Fruit, the Café Society, and her first radio recordings were taking her into the mainstream, she started going out with a club owner, Jimmy Munro. He was reputed to have been a, a pimp and a drug dealer, so her mother and agent both yelled at her to leave him. Now, I do sympathise with mother there but like anyone who does that there was a gaping hole in her logic 
Because any time that a mother has screamed at a daughter not to go out with a certain bloke, the daughter is bound to go bollocks to you and do it anyway. <laughs> How do you think people like David Miller and Andrew Lloyd Webber get people to marry them? <laughs> So in 1941, Billy and Jimmy Munro were married. They started living with Billy's mother until she threw him out for smoking opium. Then she left Jimmy and started living with a trumpeter called Joe Guy who supplied her drugs. Not only that, but he charged her at way over the going rate. Now, call me a softy romantic, but I think once you've made the commitment to live together, you really ought to flog stuff to each other at the going rate. <laughs> Eventually, the debauchery affected her performance. A pianist at one of the 52nd Street clubs, Joe Springer, said, I had learned to slow the tempo of the songs for the third show because by then she was quite stoned. One night she was so far gone, she clutched the microphone with both hands to prop herself up. As the song progressed, she fell further and further behind, and I was convinced she was oblivious to the music when she skipped a dozen words and meshed perfectly back into place. <laughs> I suppose he's lucky she never did speed. <laughs> Time and the living is easy. Fish are jumping and the cotton is high. When your daddy's bed and your mom's good looking, so hush, little baby, and don't you cry. <laughs> After a series of radio performances, she was attracting audiences of 3,000 and signed a new record deal with Decca. But she started turning up late or sometimes not at all. Uh, a club in Chicago, she turned up late every night and sang four songs in each show, despite the fact she was now earning $2,850 a week. So why did she start behaving like this? Now, the obvious answer is it was the drugs. But, I mean, most nights she did get to the show, she was just late. And in Chicago, she was late by the same amount every night. There's no drug does that. <laughs> and even if there was, who would buy it? <laughs> oh, you've got to try this stuff, man. I mean, like, one blast and it makes you 35 minutes late. <laughs> So, like, you turn on for EastEnders and it's Watchdog, man, it's wicked. <laughs> but there was another side to Billy's decadence and debauchery that's missed by the people who deride it and by those who see it as part of that victim status. She enjoyed it. It's fun to wake up on a mate's floor gradually piecing together the previous night until you think, hang on, how did we end up in a bowling alley with a horse? <laughs> People who say, of course you can enjoy a drink, but you enjoy yourself more if you do it in moderation are talking cobblers. <laughs> if you spent the night jamming in a Harlem club through a hazy drunken mist with the country's finest musicians until seven in the morning, what would you think if someone said, we had just as good a time as you with a glass of sherry and a video of Heartbeat? <laughs> with drugs. You can't alert people to the dangers of drugs unless you acknowledge that people take them because they enjoy them. No one has to warn teenagers about the danger of sticking your face into a hive of wasps. <laughs> because it's not fun. So no one does it. She booked herself into a sanatorium to come off drugs. But a few weeks after leaving the sanatorium, she was singing with Louis Armstrong in Philadelphia and the police, acting on a tip-off, waited for her back at the hotel. Her hotel had been raided by the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, who found heroin there. Firstly, I don't know why Billy just didn't do what British athletes do and say, my body made those chemicals naturally. <laughs> Whenever I sweat, me glands produce heroin capsules. <laughs> 
Billy was sentenced to a year and a day in the Federal Reformatory for Women in West Virginia, where blacks and whites ate and slept in different wings of the prison, and Billy's job was to look after the pigs. A few days after she came out of jail, she played Carnegie Hall, performing 25 songs and six encores to 3,000 people. She stayed hidden from dealers and changed her agent in an effort to keep off the heroin. But Billy's next problem was that to work in a building that sold liquor, you needed a cabaret card, which you couldn't get if you had a criminal record of any sort. And now the FBI withdrew her card. So she could only work in theatres, but no longer in clubs. And these were ideal circumstances then for her to start a new relationship with a dependable, sympathetic figure. So instead she chose a boarding businessman who robbed her. <laughs> Billy's new man was John Levy, and he controlled all her finances. At first he bought her a mink coat and a Cadillac and boasted that this showed how generous he was, which would be fair enough, except that he bought them with her money. In fact, he was using the same tactics as the private rail companies. <laughs> Take billions of pounds off us, then on the odd occasion they spend some of it on repairing the railways. They go, there you go, baby, I'm looking after you. <laughs> Billy was arrested again for possession of opium. Soon after the arrest, Levy had left her, stealing back the mink coat before he went. And even after that, she said... But if he was to walk in the room this minute, I'd meld. And she recorded an old Bessie Smith song to make a point called Ain't Nobody's Business If I Do, which includes... I'd rather my man would hit me Than for him to jump up and quit me Business, if I do. And the way she sings it, you can't imagine it's possible to be more defiant about the right to be walloped. <laughs> Though I'm surprised that when John Levy heard it, he didn't say, I should get the money for that song. If it wasn't for me hitting her, she'd never have thought of singing it. I'm being robbed. <laughs> After the court case, she drifted back onto the heroin until her liver and her heart went wrong. And she recorded one album while being held onto a stall by a nurse. She preferred to be backed by this time by string orchestras, and she still insisted. I can't stand to sing the song the same way, two nights in succession. If you can, then it ain't music. It's drill or yodeling. And the jazz phrasing was still there, but the drugs did take their toll. She was weaker, and she was less sparky. She married another man, Louis Mackay, and the pair of them ended up on another drugs charge. She toured Europe and became especially popular with black Algerians in France who were supporting the anti-colonial movement, but she was falling apart. Her best friend, Lester Young, died from alcoholism, and this seemed to sap the last of her strength. She weighed only seven stone, and in 1959, she collapsed in New York and was put in an oxygen tent. She hadn't seen her husband for several months, but he arrived to get her to sign a contract for a film about her life. The police removed her newspapers, her radio and her record player, but they needn't have worried, as on the 17th of July, she died. She had 70 cents credit in the bank. Now the Western world looks back on episodes like segregation and the mania that went with it with slight embarrassment. See, bigotry always looks irrational from a distance, but like common sense close to home. When asylum seekers arrive, almost every newspaper starts screaming, like the Daily Mail headline, that asylum seekers come here illegally so... They can enjoy the hotel's extras and watch cable television. <laughs> so, they go, it's been a strange few days in the back of a lorry fearing for our lives surrounded by our own urine, but worth it because now we can watch pole vaulting on Eurosport. <laughs> so what is the most important aspect of singing? Well, some people, of course, go, the old singers were the best because you could hear all the words. But what value is there in that if the song goes tea for two and two for tea and only a dash of milk for me or however it goes? <laughs> 
You'd be better off with Shane McGowan going... At least you'd think there was a chance the lyrics made sense. <laughs> like all great music, from Beethoven to The Stones or The Clash, Billie Holiday, at her prime, used a technical genius to convey a deep and forceful passion against injustice, but for life. When asked why so many jazz musicians died young, she said... Because we live a lifetime and every day. But for modern jazz fans, like the ones at that club that I went to, here is the whole lecture again, specially customised for you using nounless sentences. <laughs> this is a of a four on my because I used to hate. When I first heard that were once considered shocking outrageous, I thought, what? Yeah! <laughs> the Mark Steele lecture was written and performed by Mark Steele with the help of Martin Heider and Carla Mendonca. The producer was Lucy Armitage. Ain't nobody.